This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. This neuroscientist and CrossFit Games athlete somehow managed to find the time to talk to us about her new book, Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. In talking with Allison, we find what inspired her to start researching for her most recent publication. As she explains, the dichotomy that exists in people of her profession who lift weights is widely scrutinized. The old stereotype of, quote, dumb jock still holds strong today, despite evidence to the contrary. Allison goes on to discuss just how the brain is stimulated and developed simply through the acquisition of new skills. Do you know someone who struggles with performing under pressure? Choking is a phenomenon that can be tracked in the brain and improved upon. This drives our conversation to what can be perceived as the extreme opposite of those who can't control their fear, the daredevil athlete. Allison explains why she considers herself one and why it puts her at risk for other excessive dopamine-seeking activities. Finally, what role does sleep play in the brain of an athlete? This subject is covered almost ad nauseum by most specialists, but Allison provides a fresh take on what this really means in terms of wins and losses. Traveling across time zones and playing in tournaments or competing has a quantifiable effect on all teams. The number of losses attributed to this alteration in sleep behavior is staggering. Hold on, because this is one dense episode worth several listens. Luckily, Allison keeps the information tangible both in her book and our chat. After all, we are just a bunch of meatheads, right? Here's episode 111. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? It's that time. Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Your yo, premier yo. podcast in strength and conditioning. We know this. So I have to keep repeating it. I might as well. We're taking over the world. <laughs> Today I'm joined with the Power Athlete coaches, John, Luke, Tex, Callie, and our special guest is Allison Brager. She's a neuroscientist, doctor, games athlete, author of the great book Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. Allison, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, you know, maybe we can just kind of get the ball rolling a little bit and uh, you could kind of share with our listeners uh, just a little bit like about your journey, your story, you know, how you got to where you are kicking ass and <laughs> we'll just kind of get the ball rolling. Sure. You have 15 seconds. You All got right. 15 seconds. Go. It's a macaron. Elevator pitch. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, it's funny. uh I can, I'm on the job market right now looking for a permanent faculty position and uh, apparently I confuse the hell out of a lot of job search committees because when they do a Google image search for me, they get pictures of me in a lab coat coupled with pictures of me lifting heavy weight 
and of course there's more pictures lifting heavy weights so they're kind of confused as to you know what I do on a daily basis but I could talk quickly about my athletic background um, so I grew up in the heart of the Rust Belt in a city known as Youngstown Ohio um, you may have seen recently on an ESPN documentary that's been on Netflix called Youngstown Boys that it is a community really rich in athletics so we've had a handful of professional coaches and athletes namely in football and boxing that have come out of our community so growing up I think everyone's mindset was to be a professional athlete especially at the high school I went to um, Bernie Kozar actually went to my high school and we've had a handful of football players who have come out of my high school and have gone on to play in the NFL uh, in fact there's like two or three kids within my graduating class of 500 alone who are now currently playing or were drafted by the NFL at some point uh, so you know in high school athletics was very serious it was either you were an athlete or you were in the music program um, so I didn't really have any stigmatism when it came to athletics in high school uh, so in terms of sports I did I was always a two-sport athlete I did gymnastics and dance my entire life but then in eighth grade I started doing track and I specialized in sprints and long jump it turned out that I got recruited for um, long jump hurdles and then I picked up pole vault my senior year of high school because of my gymnastics background um, you're probably wondering why I didn't pick up pole vault earlier and the reason is because when I was growing up girls weren't allowed to pole vault in the state of Ohio it was a completely sexist stand but um, when I was a junior they were finally allowed to pole vault and I had a lot of success right away with that largely in part due to my high school athletic coach who I talk a lot about in Meathead um, so then I went on to college I went to Brown University and I competed in track and field and it was there when I started to realize the the stigma that athletes have um, you may know that Brown is an Ivy League and so the focus is always on academics versus athletics and uh, it was really hard there um, a lot of the student body didn't take us seriously we were called stupid we were called meatheads we were called dumb jocks um, so I definitely used that as as a muse almost for the title of my book to basically show the world that you know it makes no sense to, to call somebody a dumb jock because athletes are smarter um, so then after college I decided to pursue a PhD in neuroscience that was always a an area of research and an area of uh, study and in class that I was super interested and passionate about and of course I still try to be a high-level athlete um, and I was doing you know pole vault still so I did a lot of um, track and field competitions through USATF and then I would compete as an open competitor in college meets and then I was actually doing CrossFit workouts and not actually knowing I was doing CrossFit workouts um, so days that I weren't pole vaulting I would go into the rec center and I would do a lot of Olympic lifting until at one point they were like hey you can't do this anymore um, I would go and take the medicine balls and I would do all these uh, wall balls and different plyometric drills in the uh, basketball court area until I was told hey you can't do this anymore so luckily um, about three years into my PhD I found out about CrossFit 
And it was actually through a high school friend of mine who many of you all know, uh, Dan Bailey. So um, I grew up with Dan Bailey. We didn't go to the same high school, but um, our high schools were, were rival high schools in track and field. And, you know, I knew him since ninth grade um, because we competed in the same events and would see each other at the same invitationals. So, yeah, I started CrossFit, um, finished up my Ph.D., Moved to Atlanta, was fortunate enough to just dive right in with a great group of teammates. Uh, we started Squat Mafia in 2012, and we had a lot of success our first year. We went to the games as a team. Last year, we all decided to go individual. All of us uh, ladies doing Squat Mafia made it. And then this year, we made a commitment to go team again, and uh, we we're going back to the game. So um, it's been a great journey. You know, there's been a lot of coaches, a lot of support uh, from family and friends along the way. Um, but yeah, I kind of asked for a better life. That's amazing. I want your life. First of all, uh, you know, I, I, I the fact that you're not only a really accomplished athlete and you have that athletic background of um, kind of breaking the bar barrier at your own high school for being the first female pole vaulter there. That's correct, right? Yeah. Oh, actually, I was the first female pole vaulter in Ohio. In Ohio. Okay. Yeah. There was, um, there was a handful of us. I would say there's about five of us girls. Um, all of us went on to pole vault in college. But, yeah, I was the first female pole vaulter in my high school, my city, and then one of the first few in the state of Ohio. Amazing. Um, and we actually, it's kind of funny, all five of us learned pole vault from the same coach in Columbus, Ohio. So my mom, every two weeks, every two Saturdays after I finished with gymnastics, we would get in a car and drive to Columbus, which was about three hours away. We'd spend the night there, and then I'd work with, his name was uh, Coach Dave Garcia. He actually is uh, one of the pole vault coaches at Ohio State. And... Uh, yeah, I would pole vault with him all day Sunday, and then we'd just drive back Sunday night, and we'd do that every two weeks. Wow. That's some serious dedication. Well, yeah. along with your, I mean, your accolades, your um, your book is amazing. Um, I mean, it, first of all, it was super kind of you to send Meathead to all of us, and uh, as much as I, I tried to dive into every little uh, subject matter in here, because it is, uh, it's pretty broad scope a broad scope of um, topics uh, I I don't know I I'm definitely gonna be reading this like multiple times I highly recommend <laughs> it and I'm not just trying to like put the plug out there I just it's just an impressive book of a lot of different ideas and I think it's you know for anyone who's who's looking to dive deeper into just not only the psychology but in terms of the physiology the importance of sleep I mean it's all in this book and um, you know I guess my first question to you is just uh, what initially drove you to write the book? Well, I talked just about that now. Um, you know, it always pissed me off that people would dismiss me as a dumb jock. And it's something that I think started in college going to an Ivy League, but has since precipitated having, you know, chosen a career in science because um, I don't really consider most scientists to have a um, a passion for fitness. You know, just... Scientists who I've met, I've met over the years, uh, fitness isn't really on top of their list in terms of hobbies. Now, fortunately, I've been able to find you know a group of people in science where fitness is their hobby. So when we meet up with each other at conferences and meetings, we you know we have a swole session. We'll go paddleboarding or do you know outdoor type activities. 
Um, so that was one reason. And then the other reason was um, I just kind of had this aha moment one day when I was um, writing public transit in Atlanta, and I was like, man, there really isn't that much data out there in terms of how exercise benefits the brain. Like, we all kind of assume that it benefits brain health just like it benefits physical health, but what hard empirical facts, especially in terms of mechanism and how exercise regulates the brain, is available. And so I just did a quick PubMed search, and I was totally flabbergasted by how little information is out there. Um, and so, you know, I've been fortunate enough to find a handful of studies to support my hypothesis and my thesis in my book, um, but I still think that there's so much more to be accomplished in terms of what's happening at the level of the individual cells of the brain, what's happening with networks of the brain and how they're communicating, and what's happening to changes in entire brain areas with exercise, whether it's, you know, somebody who works out recreationally, and of course, my biggest interest is someone who's a competitive athlete. Like, is that nature or is that nurture? Um, and so, yeah, I was surprised how, how this is, you know, like a, a burgeoning field and has, you know, much more progress to, to go with. Well, let's get to um, some of the content in the book then. Um, I know that you and Denny had a chance to talk about this when you guys were doing the run-through, but uh, I guess you guys spoke about the development of uh, movement patterning and how for the experienced athlete, movement becomes more reactive and instinctual. Um, and it becomes obviously an ingrained part of what we do. And, uh, you know, you make an interesting, uh, there's an interesting quote in there and I'm going to bastardize it completely because I don't, I'm not, I'm not right on, I'm not right on the page, but uh, there was, there was a point in time where you, you basically talk about um, how when you were under the most mental fatigue, you performed the best technique wise. Uh, and it's because of kind of overthinking. And is that, is that related to move, movement patterning? Is that kind of an evolution of once you sort of mastered something, um, you kind of have to let go? Do you want, do you mind kind of, uh, Oh yeah. Elaborating? So that, that is the mindset of an athlete. Um, I talk about this early on in the book. One of the, one of the key differences at the level of the brain that separates an elite athlete from an amateur is brain efficiency. So an elite athlete is able to filter out the noise and um, basically multitask because they've been doing these skills over and over again for thousands of hours that there's less brain power required in order to initiate those skills. Um, and it's the same with the muscles too. You know, the muscles in the brain, there's you know, direct connections between them. So if you can have that level of uh, efficiency at the level of the brain, of course you can have it at the level of the muscle. And what's so unique and so powerful about the muscle is that it has its own circuitry outside of the brain. So there's this, um, this motor unit circuit that exists between the brain and the spinal cord solely that does not require any brain input that is responsible for reflexes, you know? Like whenever, you know, you were a kid and you went to the doctor and they tapped your patellar tendon and it immediately jolted up, that entire response is connections between the spinal cord and the muscle. It has absolutely nothing to do at the level of the brain. And fortunately for a lot of highly technical skills like the snatch, the clean, the jerk, when you practice enough, 
you know, just like Malcolm Gladwell says, 10,000 hours of practice, um, you can further strengthen that circuit between the spinal cord and the muscle and not really recruit much of uh, brain power. Yeah, the and the and the kind of the the little anecdote you give is the Bruce Lee quote, which is, "I fear not the man who has practiced ten thousand kicks once, but rather the man who has practiced one kick ten thousand times." Exactly. Um, you know, it's something that myself personally, I'm still learning. Um, my first introduction to Olympic lifting was early on in college, but of course, our strength and conditioning coaches only really cared about the football team and the hockey team, rightfully so, because, you know, those were the income generators. And uh, I had always thought that snatches and cleans were for your arms. I had no idea you used your legs and your posterior chain in order to execute those lifts. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, it's been four years trying to reverse those motor patterns that I learned initially as a, as a teenager and try to fix them and correct them as an adult. Because... Um, and I talk about this in the book, too. The timeline is important, too. So if a, if a teenager is learning an X skill in their critical years where their brain is maturing, their body is maturing, um, the, the body and the brain are going to stick with those movement patterns and those ways of doing things more than as an adult. It's just and, like it's easier to learn a language when you're younger opposed to when you're older, too. Right. And I mean, assuming that uh, that there's a there's a positive result and that it's a positive kind of technique. I mean, don't you think that this implies almost that there could be this cyclical relationship between um, the movement patterning being um, effective and successful and also the psychological aspect to that, which is that you almost you almost it becomes like this like self-fulfilling prophecy that you you have confidence then in the in the fact that your default is of a high level and so you worry about it less and so you don't think about it as much and so it almost it kind of compounds itself would that make any sense oh yeah absolutely but I do think that my um, my track coach in college used to say that the problem with coaching us was that we are too damn smart and she was absolutely true because people who are inherently analytical and like to psychoanalyze everything in the world such as me, um, it makes it hard to rely on that default network, even though we know we should rely on that default network. Sticking with that, that, that part of the book, I think it was called Athletes or Geniuses, you talked mm -hmm. about just different regions of the brain that are bigger and thicker and the more experienced athletes. I, I wrote these down because I thought it was amazing. Uh, communication, spatial orientation, risk assessment, decision making, emotional reactivity, it's just those X factors that coaches want, and it it's from experience. Right, exactly. Um, and you know what? I was actually surprised that this data existed when I went searching for it on the biomedical databases, and it made me so angry that this hasn't received the public press that it deserves. But yeah, so there's um, there's five different regions of the brain, and um, this is something that I should have at least had a diagram of in the book in hindsight, but there's the frontal regions which are basically the areas of the brain that make us uniquely human. So those are the areas where um, risk-taking, decision-making, um, being able to solve mathematical equations, be being able to invent things, that's where all those 
really um, inherently human characteristics come from. And then you have the um, parietal region of the brain, which is actually where the motor areas lie. So there's these um, two unique regions called the premotor, premotor area and the supplementary motor cortex that are involved for um, and responsible for basically all movement from every single type of body part. It's just the the area devoted to each body part differs, and a lot of it is based on use. Um, okay, so so it is based on use. So there is the the capacity to then um, I don't know, sort of I guess quote unquote strengthen that part of the brain or develop it more. Yes. So uh, these studies were actually done, I believe, in the 50s or 60s. There's this neuroscientist named Dr. Penfield who studied this a lot, and um, people who were and amputees, basically, after the war, um, they found that you know a loss of a limb caused a shrinking of that respective area of the brain. But then the other limb that was obviously being overused now to compensate for loss of limb would increase in size. Um, and it's also been documented, and I believe musicians too. So I think in one study they. Um, looked at experienced pianists, and they found that um, areas of the motor uh, motor areas of the brain had increased surface area devoted to uh, finger movement. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, your definition of choking and what uh, could be some of the causes for um, this phenomena to occur in athletes? Yeah, sure. Um, there's this uh, neuroscientist at Chicago who, I guess as a plug for her book, she's a great book on it. She's the world's expert on choking. Uh, she's a former athlete too. I believe her book is called Choke. Um, and, and, and by the way, is there no better term for this? Is there no like uh, scientific term for for like uh, you know not being able to perform under stress? <laughs> there probably is. I'm sure. <laughs> Cy I'm sure. Cyabellock. However, you say her name has uh -huh. has created one. Um, okay. Scientists love to create uh, very uh, fancy terms that nobody else can can understand. Yeah. Sorry for oh. interrupting. Go ahead. Actually, maybe the, the the term that they use in psychology often would be like cognitive dissonance or sure. motor motor dissonance, something like that. Okay. Um, but neurobiologically, my definition of choking would be when you allow the brain to interfere with what the muscles and the spinal cord already know to do. Um, so usually by the time you compete, there should be no thinking involved. You're, you've trained your body up to this point from the hundreds of hours of practice. So the only thing left to do is to go out and do what you did during those hundred hours of practice. And when you start overanalyzing your technique or overanalyzing um, you know the the intensity of the movement. That's when you mess up. So, so in, in, oh, in the book, you referenced a, a test with soccer players. So more advanced versus either younger or not experienced athletes. And what they did, they they dribbled the ball and then they performed a memory test. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that, you mentioned performance deficits. Uh, so my my question with that, just kind of going in what you're talking about. Is it better to focus on just mastering the basic skills so you don't have to think about them or throw a complex 
kind of challenge at those athletes like the dribble and memory test combined. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I definitely, and, and this probably manifests from, um, you know, that the CrossFit manifesto is I think there's a benefit to mastering the basic skills because you can combine all those basic skill movements and at a certain point you can combine them into a complex skill. Um, you know, in CrossFit they use the, the, the muscle up progression. Um, if an athlete isn't already neurobiologically capable of or, you know, doing a muscle up. And um, I think there's some there's great benefit to taking those basic skills and then applying them to more complex situations, not just with sports, but you know, and it's the same approach we use in science too. Is like you have to learn the basic foundation, the basic skill sets before you can apply those questions and those skills to tackling more complex questions and using more, you know, complex cutting edge techniques. So you feel throwing too complex at an athlete too early will kind of oh, stop their growth? Yeah, I think I mean I'm I'm not a, I've coached a little in high school and, and college level, but certainly not to the extent that you have. But um, just on what I know from the literature perspective, I that's you know that's my hypothesis. Excellent. Some of the biggest takeaways, honestly, from from my perspective, was this is this is arming kind of a coach with information to mm -hmm. present to a sport coach who's fighting back and saying we need to, you know, freaking drive them into the ground. Well, now, kind of, it helps break down exercise in the brain, so you can show the coach what's going on in there, and kind of a learning process for movement that maybe they they don't quite understand yet or expect of that athlete. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I try to keep that in mind while writing this book in terms of demographics I wanted to target. Um, and coaches was definitely a top three demographic of target. Um, like I said, I've, I've been a coach at the high school level and shortly at the college level. Um, and everyone has their own unique skill set in terms of in specialization. But when it comes to training as a whole, like the broad scope of strength and conditioning and then day-to-day um, -day, you know metabolic cardiovascular training um, you know the brain and how it responds to that is totally neglected do you think uh, is, is choking I mean is that a, that's a pretty small percentage of the athletic population I mean I don't I don't know but in my kind of my experiences of coaching athletes I, it's actually a um, Pretty, pretty rare to see someone when you when you've built them up with the skills and provided the proper training there's obviously an element of stress and nervousness and um, you know all the chemical reactions in the brain that are occurring just due to kind of the heightened state of arousal uh, during competition mm -hmm. which I think are is normal but when I think of choking I think of almost like there there it's like an outlier what would you agree or disagree with that yeah I mean I would agree with that I, I think you know, some of the most memorable sporting moments for me have been meets where I'm like, how did I do that? How did I jump that high? Or why did I do so poorly? Um, and I would agree. It's, you know, I think if you have the base training and you've put in the effort, then you should expect performance. But, you know, every so often, yeah, you're going to have an, an outlier. You're going to have a moment in time where your brain wasn't, aligned properly with your body and that's what's going to happen. Um, 
I think for me, why I've been so intrigued by choking is because if you think about the sports that I did in college, which is pole vaulting, you always end on a failure. Like that is when you are done with your event is you miss a height. So um, having always done a sport where I'm always going to fail at the very end, um, that's another reason why I've always been intrigued with the, the concept of choking. And Allison, I guess it's have the you ever same heard for of, Olympic oh, weightlifting too, you know? You always end with a miss. True. Allison, have you ever heard of Chuck Knobloch, a uh, major yes. league baseball player? Yes, so, I have. Famous, famous choker. Um, and he just made some errant throws, but then basically dug himself uh, in quicksand, and he could never, from a second baseman, never just make the throw to first. And his career ended after something he's done literally 10,000 times over and over at a high level, but he just could not put it together, and even sports psychologists couldn't save his career. Yeah. Well, that's why I use Charles Nagy as, a, as an example of the book, because having been a Cleveland sports fan my whole life, um, I want to say they choked this time around, but in the past with the Cavs and with the Cleveland Indians, and I wasn't even alive when the Browns were actually good at one point in time. Um, there's just been so many instances of choking in, in Cleveland sports growing up as a kid that, um, oh yeah, Ohio State football too. It's, it's just has, that idea has stuck with me. So I'm glad that there is an expert out there who is looking more empirically and scientifically into this concept. So, I mean, do you, do you have, uh, just from, I mean, you're a competitor yourself, do you have any advice for uh, people who do kind of suffer from this, this bizarre but, um, but I mean, well-known phenomena? Yeah, well, what I like to do is I like to take my mind outside of the scope of the competition. So... I find doing things like talking to my fellow competitors helps me calm down my nerves but also you know not obsessively think about what I have to do because um, I do that every single time before uh, a CrossFit competition I used to do it in college I used to do it in high school I would just obsessively think in an unhealthy manner about my performance the next day um, so yeah talking to people I also like to, I'll like gravitate or like latch on to some song or something that's like playing in the background. Um, so like that playlist I created for you, a lot of those songs that um, I have on there, ones that, you know, I was in a big competition and I happen to hear that song in the background. So I like to play that song over and over again in my head while I'm competing to, again, take my brain and prevent my brain from interfering with what my body already knows how to do. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about different types of athletes. I mean, you delineate in your book about uh, uh, individual athletes versus team sport athletes, and then you talk more in, uh, into almost like the, the daredevil athlete. And uh, I kind of wanted to talk about some of, some of that. And, you know, in the book, um, I, it seems as if there really isn't any – sound scientific evidence or research that can point uh, to a direction in, in so much as that 
we say, okay, an individual sport athlete is has X, Y, and Z uh, characteristics, or a team sport athlete is going to, you know, is going to exhibit these types of either personality traits or priority type traits or whatever. Um, and it, I mean, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the research on that and and if there are any sound, um, you know, uh, things that we can extrapolate from these types of athletes? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There actually is, and I've looked since my book has come out, there's no neurobiological evidence for what makes an ind individual athlete excel versus a team athlete. Again, going back to this whole nature versus nurture. So yeah, they did all these brain imaging studies in elite athletes versus rookie athletes and how training makes their brain unique, but nobody has looked at that yet in individual versus team athletes outside of the realm of classic psychology research. So I talked a lot in my book about how there's been um, personality inventories done in terms of um, assigning certain traits like extroversion or introversion or um, conscientiousness or neuroticism with uh, an ind individual versus team athletes. But in terms of the neurobiology, there's, yeah, there's absolutely nothing. It's crazy. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. In celebration of reaching 10,000 Instagram followers, we're bringing back our hashtag Toes Forward competition. To mark this awesomeness, we've joined forces with Mobility Wad to make this a totally tits prize giveaway. How to enter? Take a photo of your feet with your toes pointing forward and post it with hashtag toes forward. Make sure you also tag at Power Athlete HQ and at Mobility Wad. The competition will run Friday the 26th of June through Saturday the 11th of July. One lucky winner will be picked at random. So what's in this for you? Well, we've got six months free Power Athlete training via Train Heroic, $100 credit at Power Athlete Store plus free shipping, one hour movement and mobility consultation with Mobility Wad, as well as signed copies of the new Mobility Wad books. So help us celebrate tipping the 10,000 mark by entering the hashtag Toastboard competition. Go nuts, get creative, and by all means, get your shoe or pedicure game on point. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Yeah, it is. It, it did strike me as kind of nuts because, I mean, when we met in Seattle and we chatted even for a short time, that was one of my questions because I, you know, I'm, I'm super interested in how sport transfers into, uh, you know, other other parts of life. So the, the other um, facets that we deal with on a daily basis, like uh, work and relationships and interaction in other kind of microcosms. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, curious to hear if you thought maybe an individual athlete had personality traits that would make them more adept at running a business or being a leader mm -hmm. or even have being, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as we kind of segue into the daredevil athlete, I mean, that, that does definitely pique my, my interest in, do these athletes who are 
uh, I don't know, it almost seems like in the book, it seems like they're predisposed to seek out more of this, I guess, dopamine uptake, and uh, yeah. and they're, they they yearn for it more, and therefore they, they seek out um, sort of like either gravity-defying or whatever type of, uh, type of um, I don't know, athletic feats. Uh, you know, I'm almost curious if those people are more courageous in their personal lives as well or professional lives if they're more prone to either gamble or uh, take risks you know in business or what have you but talk a little bit about the brain of kind of that daredevil athlete sure I can talk a lot about it because I also consider myself to be not an extreme daredevil but at least a, a moderate daredevil yeah um, and actually my so I did my PhD work looking at animal models of drug addiction and so we focused on how drugs of abuse such as alcohol and cocaine, which are entirely different classes, one's a depressant, one's a stimulant, affected sleep areas of the brain, and then what happened to drug addiction when you disrupted these sleep areas. So um, I do know a lot about dopamine theories and how they apply to reward-seeking behavior. So uh, basically, dopamine we know is the neurochemical of pain and pleasure. Uh, the brain can't differentiate between whether it was a pleasurable stimulus or a painful stimulus um, from the perspective of dopamine. So when you feel pain, dopamine's released. When you feel pleasure, dopamine's released. And uh, one of the things that scientists have actually characterized um, over the years in a select few studies is that daredevils, so we're talking about like the X Games athletes, have unique genetic um, differences in terms of the, the transporters and the nerve cells that produce and release dopamine. So basically their dopamine cells are pumping out more dopamine and their body, their brains are taking up more dopamine. It's a, it's a more efficiently um, operated dopamine system. But we also know that the brain doesn't differentiate between rewards. So basic instincts such as food, sex, exercise, water, um, and then of course human-driven instincts such as the media and gambling, uh, those are all things that are regulated by dopamine. And in the field of drug addiction, we have this term known as hyperhedonia, which is basically that some individuals, their brains are in a constant reward-seeking state. So this is typically what you would see or expect to see in a daredevil is that their brain is in the constant reward-seeking state where they're always, their brain's setting the bar higher and higher in terms of how much dopamine's being released and how much dopamine different brain areas are getting. Um, and so I think, you know, that's the manifestation for the daredevil. And if you talk about taking athletic career and translating that to professional career, yeah, I would expect that most daredevils have careers where there is a ton of decision-making and, more importantly, a ton of risk-taking because their brains, don't, their brains don't know any better. Yeah. That, oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. And it's funny in the book you talk about how you took the, the 23andMe test, which is um, – you know, if you want to talk about that briefly, but but basically you found that you fell into that category 
um, and that you know you're at high risk for certain disorders or um, you know addiction, restless leg syndrome, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah. So I was um, with the 23andMe. It gives you confidence ratings, and so if you have a confidence rating of 95% or higher, chances are that um, that was a, a verifiable hit. So it's not saying that you're going to have this, it's just there's a higher probability that you will have this and every single disease state that showed up on my profile was related to uh, dysfunction and dopamine. And yeah. in most cases it was heightened dopamine. So I, I do have a family history of um, drug addiction and it also turns out that I'm at high risk for restless leg syndrome, which is funny, it's a you know, big sleep disorder and the main um, cause of restless leg syndrome is uh, heightened dopamine production. Huh. So, and this is true in a human model of restless leg syndrome, but we've also have actually engineered uh, fly models of restless leg syndromes and mouse models of restless leg syndrome. And in those models too, there's heightened dopamine release. Interesting. I guarantee you if I took that 23andMe, I would be found as probably not having the daredevil kind of traits and attributes. It's funny because uh, people ask me, well, I was, I did gymnastics as well, and I say, well, I mean, I was a gymnast through high school on my high school team, uh, probably much like you were early in your life, and mm -hmm. I, um, you know, people would say, oh, so you're a gymnast, and I just jokingly say, no, I'm on the gymnastics team because I was fucking terrified of what I was doing on a daily basis. <laughs> And get this, uh, Allison, I was approached by the, the track coach, and he approached me, uh, I think it was my junior or senior year, to be the first female pole vaulter at our high school. Oh, and, man. And, and he, showed, he, he showed me what was involved, and I watched a few guys, and I said, uh, no, this is, I don't think I can do it. It's not for me. Um, you know, I, I tried a couple times. He tried to coach me through it, and I just, I did not have, I have a, I have a pretty uh, intense fear of heights and uh, it's just funny how oh, there, yeah. there's that parallel but my personality type is so much that it's it, it just nothing about that really like appealed to me <laughs> right and so it's just funny that you it, like you talk about in your book um, you know m missing and falling in gymnastics and things like that and that was enough to really deter me from the sport in a huge way and so I was always just much more of like the cautious and conservative uh, athlete when it came to that sport but um, but yeah I mean it's obviously led you to a lot of extremes in your life um, and you know obviously uh, CrossFit being the next one I mean you how many times a day do you train? Right. I mean, I train I, twice a day um, yeah. pro, for the most part. So um, ever since we started Squat Mafia in 2012, but even before then, I would try to do two-a-days at least uh, two times a week. Now we're doing two-a-days about three or four times a week. But it's been that way for, you know, the past two years on our program. And even before that, I mean, I don't really know any different. When I was in high school, I was training six hours a day because I was a two-sport athlete. And in college, we were training about four hours a day, especially since I was a multi-event athlete. And so it's the same with CrossFit. You know, I don't, I don't know any better. <laughs> right, right. And you love it. And I, I think that that, that, I mean, that's fantastic. That's why, that's why you broke, uh, wrote the book, and we can all, um, you know, benefit from hearing uh, from all of your research here. Tex, did you have something you want to add? Yeah, I think this is a good time to jump into neurological fatigue. So you talk oh, yeah. about training twice a day. 
so I had an interesting experience at this working uh, working with some college guys, and there there were four set percentages on a card, and the guys were crushing it uh, week two, and we're just in week three now, and nearly 50% of the team just they couldn't hit their percentage. So mm-hmm. as soon as that happened in the morning, uh, head coach is just pissed at these guys and talking down to them, and then I stumble upon this portion of your book, and I'm trying to think. Uh, like what's going on here? Is it is it mental? Is it is it physiological? Is it both? What's what's happening with neurological fatigue? Well, neurological fatigue, it's pretty straightforward. So, um, you know, there's this whole idea of mind over matter, but when it comes to neurological neurological fatigue, that concept doesn't exist. I mean, your body's done when it's done, and this goes back to that whole motor unit pattern generator between the spinal cord and the muscles. So there's this circuit and the nerves are going to fire at a, at a certain rate and at a certain intensity, but of course as you work harder and you're increasing body temperature and you're producing more lactic acid, that whole circuitry is going to break down. And whether you're motivated and you feel amped up you know, because you've taken caffeine or because you're in a, like a positive training environment, it doesn't matter. You're, you know, your body's fucking done. And that's something I don't think I really appreciated until I started doing Squat Mafia because um, a lot of times when we do our squatting sets, we will go to complete failure. And even though we felt great on the set before, the next set you can barely get the bar down and you're like, you know, what the fuck? Like, what's going on? I feel great. So it's, it's, uh, it's a real problem. And unfortunately, we don't have much empirical evidence to you know directly quantify neuro, neurological fatigue in real time and what durations it, it happens within but hopefully I think that research will be available soon because a lot of people at least in the fields of skeletal muscle biology are really interested in this yeah I, I, I think it was just because the NBA finals are going on and they're waking up at freaking 5:30 a.m. after staying up all night but uh, is there any signs or anything that you could get give coaches to look for and just point them in the right direction or talk to them about how sleep can affect this as well? Yeah, I mean, I could probably talk an entire hour about sleep. Um, but I think, so the biggest thing with sleep, and it falls with every other aspect of daily life, is to keep it consistent. So I recommend that athletes train at a specific time, they eat at a specific time, and they sleep at a specific time. Uh, What people don't realize is that we have a biological clock in pretty much every single tissue of our body. So we have a biological clock in the brain, which is the main biological clock, but then it communicates with all these other clocks that are in our muscles, in our hearts, in fat tissue, in lungs, in pancreas, in liver, all those organs that are really... um, highly recruited and overactive during high-intensity exercise. And so when you train at a specific time, you eat and you sleep at a specific time, the body primes itself and conditions itself to release hormones associated with those activities at a specific time. And so if you screw up the timing of that, even by two or three hours, your body is totally awry whether you know it or not. And so that's why, like, an athlete who's so conditioned to training at 7 a.m. tries to train at 3 p.m. and does horrendous. Um, And same with competing, too. Um, That's part of the reason why right after the Open, we immediately switch to um, 
a three days on, one day off, two days on, where we have Thursday off because we know the Thursday before regionals and the Thursdays before the games, we would not be competing. And then we have Mondays off because we know that's the recovery from regionals and the recovery from the games. So kind of sticking with, with that, I know a lot of our coaches are, are high school level guys. They either have a Thursday night game, Friday night game, or kind of Saturday afternoon. I know you go into uh, the book about this, but how can you kind of prepare an athlete for that building up to the performance that week? So that week, um, well, first off, I think it's important to always, again, train around the time that you're competing. Now, of course, you're not going to know exactly when you're competing. Um, and, of course, you know, Saturday early games are the exception. Um, but, you know, most most coaches know their schedules that before the season even starts. So if you prime your body to training at the same time you're competing, then I think that in itself is going to have a huge performance advantage. And, you know, there's a lot of scientific literature now to, to back up these findings. So there, I, I think I... No, I didn't talk about it in the book because the study came out a year ago. So there was a study that came out out of Stanford, the group over there, that basically looked at wins and losses in the NFL between East Coast teams and West Coast teams during the afternoon and evening games. And they compared this against a Vegas point spread, which is a pretty... Um, a pretty good index because it accounts for you know history of the team matchup, player injury and performance rates, weather, etc. And they found that a West Coast team, oh, excuse me, that an East Coast team that was playing on the West Coast during the night games lost 70% of the time. And they did this across the entire history of the NFL. So they looked at win-loss records from 1974 all the way up to the present. And 70% of the time, an East Coast team playing a night game on the West Coast loss. That is amazing. That's insane. What a, does it seem like a, I mean, shit, does that seem like a fair slash unfair advantage depending on where the game is? Depends if you're betting or playing. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and it, they also made a statement, too, that it's probably no coincidence if you look at, like, Super Bowl titles and whether they come from the West Coast or East Coast, um, that may have played into it, too. Um, and, you know, it's since these studies, like, I know um, one person in the sleep field in particular who has, you know, capitalized on this and has started a consulting company and, and has is now working with professional sports teams and Olympic committees in order to to consider this. Yeah. Uh, I've done a little bit of consulting work with um, the men's soccer team in preparation for Beijing and um, also the weightlifting team in 2012. Um, but in that regard, it was more like creating a sleep-friendly environment. So minimizing noise, minimizing light, um, and again, like trying to keep a consistent schedule when you're out there in the Olympic Village in terms of when you eat and train and how that matches up with competition. Yeah, so with regards to the light, um, I mean, I had heard this, but I hadn't heard it worded particularly the way you had it in your book with exposure to blue slash white light. Um, if you if you experience that, uh, the blue-white light in the morning within, I guess, uh, for 10 to 15 minutes uh, in the morning, you can uh, 
help to regulate the time that you go to bed that that evening. Correct. So yeah, I mean, so, it helps get get your uh, get your your clock, I guess, arranged for whatever time zone you're in if it's changed. Exactly. So um, all mammals have something in science that we call a photic response curve, which is basically when you're providing light during a time that normally that light isn't present, it can shift the biological clocks in your brain. And um, so this exists for humans. We've characterized this in hamsters. We've characterized this in mice. We've characterized this in flies. And with humans, we're most responsive to blue light. Um, blue light has a lot of physical energy in it, and it's a really potent activator of our biological clocks. So with our photic response curve, if you are exposed to blue light early after you wake up in the morning, you can advance the the biological clock in your brain, meaning that your biological clock will redil, will uh, prime itself to go to bed earlier that night. But if you do blue light late at night, which is the issue with like iPads and cell phones because they emit a lot of blue light, uh, you're priming your biological clock to delay itself. Right. And right. in the process, you're also suppressing melatonin, which our body starts secreting melatonin as soon as it gets dark outside. Um, it's, you know, the nickname for melatonin is the hormone of darkness. Yeah. And um, so you're suppressing that melatonin with blue light and you're going to delay your bedtime even more. So it's, it's a vicious cycle because, you know, you're going to bed later, but then the sunlight is also a potent activator of, of our clocks. So you're going to wake up earlier and you're going to skip out on sleep because... You know, yeah. you're out playing some game. I'm sure you experienced this in Seattle when you were visiting, and I oh know God, Luke. Oh, God, it was terrible. Uh, oh, my God. And, and Luke can probably comment, too, because he was just in town for the seminar, and when I moved up here, I was like, holy shit, the sun is bright at 4.30 in the yes. morning. Bright. Oh, my God. We're, and the condo we are staying in, too, it was really awesome. It was um downtown and like our room that I was staying in had like a 360 view so there was like windows on each side and even though we had blinds yeah I woke up every single day at 4:30, and then yeah. I slightly fall back to sleep and not really yeah I was kind of a zombie uh, two weeks ago because of that you know because I was going to bed my normal time like 11 11 30 like I kind of just I knew I wouldn't be able to fall asleep before that even though it's sleep deprived but yeah, yeah it was horrible <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty. It's it can can be rough, but I I uh, I got on a pretty good uh, morning training routine, and I'll tell you what, when the sun is up and really bright that early, it makes adjusting to kind of like exactly like you said, so training at a consistent hour and being um you know being alert at like five thirty six, it's not it's not that hard once you become acclimated to it. Right. No. Exactly. Like that's what people and you know, it's the whole thesis of the book is how adaptive the brain is, is you give the brain some type of stimulus and you keep presenting that stimulus over and over again, the brain will adapt itself to that. And and since you are a sleep master, I mean, that's kind of your specialty. Um, I, I did uh, have a question 
I mean, you talk about the benefits of napping and you talk about obviously duration of sleep and, and REM sleep. Um, but I, I was curious as to, I've never asked this question, but I've heard it many times that eight hours of sleep is like the ideal around that time is like the ideal. Right. And, yeah. uh, and there, you even, you even mentioned that there's a fraction of the population that are genetically predisposed to actually being productive with only four hours of sleep, albeit that those people are like, they're like the, the the a fraction of a fraction, but then we have yeah. uh, but then we have the statistic that uh, nine hours of sleep, nine hours or more, could could have uh, the same negative effects on you. I don't know neurologically or performance wise that having less than eight hours of sleep. What the fuck happens between eight hours and nine hours, or eight hours and ten hours, that makes our body go haywire and say, "All right, this is too much now." Yeah, it's um. So I can't really speak on the biological mechanism of it because we haven't quite gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. um, but my buddy Michael Granier, he's um. He just moved from University of Pennsylvania to Arizona State or maybe it's University of Arizona. But anyways, he's been the one who's created this research niche that has just been so valuable for us because um, it's not just affecting our performance, but it's affecting like risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke. It's amazing. He's been able to collect all this public database in terms of how many hours people patients report sleeping and then what types of symptoms they have. And it's crazy how you know, it falls within the bell curve. So if you're sleeping less than seven or you're sleeping more than nine, those populations are at the same level of risk for cardiovascular disease or diabetes um, relative to people who are sleeping the happy medium between seven and, and nine. Um, in sleep research, we say the golden average is 8.4. I'm not sure how we came up with that. It might be from... Um, Every year, the National Sleep Foundation does a huge survey sample of um, sleep and health outcomes. So maybe that's what that derives from. But yeah, there there definitely is something, um, you know, biologically that's going on. And I guess at the level of neuron health, I could speak a little to that because in the field of neuroscience, we have this um, idea called desensitization. So this idea that if there's too much communication coming from a single nerve cell onto another, the nerve cell that is receiving this communication will actually start developing a tolerance to it. So it will start decreasing the number of receptors available on that cell for receiving the signal uh, as a result. So if you have too much going on within the brain in terms of like too much communication within sleep promoting areas because you're sleeping yeah and the brain is going to adapt to that in a negative fashion and start ignoring that um, that line of communication huh because it's getting too much input you know there's a uh -huh. there's a fine line between you know less is more sometimes I found it very interesting how you took a scientific approach to motivation could you <laughs> kind of talk Talk to the audience about how you study motivation in the lab. Yeah, sure. Um, and a lot of that is regulated by dopamine. Um, again, going back to daredevil athletes. So um, over the years, and it, all of this has pretty much been done in animal models. 
uh, hamsters are a great animal model for pretty much anything because they are just reward-seeking creatures. So they, they love to run. I also talk about how they love alcohol and how they have evolved to process and tolerate large quantities of alcohol. I, I have it here. They can <laughs> voluntarily drink 50 times more alcohol than the average yeah. human male yeah. on a okay. daily basis. I can, I can basis. talk about that. They're also really, they have like really complex social communities. So one of the things uh, we actually studied in, in the lab I work in is if you put a male hamster into another male hamster's cage, the resident hamster, so the hamster that was living there prior, will basically kick the shit out of the, the intruding hamster. And if that intruding hamster does get the shit kicked out of him, he will show depressive symptoms behaviorally and then also neurologically for weeks on end. Um, so they are like really receptive to social cues. Uh, the reason they actually drink so much alcohol is because in their natural environment they reside in the desert and so what these hamsters do is they would collect the fruit that falls from the cacti tree, they would bury it, and then they'd let it ferment, and then once it fermented, they would uncover it and eat it. So they basically thrive and eat fermented fruit their entire lives. And so because of that, their livers and their brains have adapted to alcohol, um, and they have a huge amount of enzymes that metabolize alcohol. It's called alcohol dehydrogenase. And if you dissect the liver of a hamster post-mortem that is on an alcohol-fed diet, you will see literally no damage to the animal's liver. Just because curious, what alcohol, what, what alcohol are you feeding them? Na so, natural light? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, in grad school, yeah, we would give them like a 15, 20% alcohol solution. So we'd order, order like 200 proof alcohol from our um, chemical vendor, which they would actually tax us because we could hypothetically drink that alcohol, so they would have an alcohol tax relative to the like standard lab alcohol that you can't drink because it has nasty um, preservatives in it. And so, yeah, we would give them like 15, 20% alcohol for weeks on end, and if we didn't let them do things like run on their wheels, they would get really pissed off, but they would also drink a, a crap ton of alcohol in order to compensate for that. So they have their own, like, really unique, finely balanced reward system, too. Amazing. Amazing. Um, uh, other questions, guys? I mean, I, I feel like we could go on and on. Like I said, this book, although by first look, I mean, it looks like, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to be too much of, uh, you know, too much for, for me to wrap my mind around, but it's one of those that I want to read uh, multiple times because there's just so much meat in here. It's, it's, ridiculous. Um, is there anything that you uh, want our listeners or anybody reading the book to kind of kind of take away in terms of context for you writing it or if, yeah, any, sure. if anything's changed? Um, the research hasn't really changed much. Um, aside from that NFL study that I cited, I think uh, we still have a lot to learn. Um, I was curious what you thought about the foreword because I actually put a lot of heart and soul into that. Um, in terms of the woman who, who wrote the foreword, did, I don't know if you happen to yeah. read it. What I, what I took away from the foreword and, and your friend's story was that you guys have just been blessed with amazing coaches. And yeah, I think exactly. that the, the, the big thing is that one thing that we talk about at our seminar as well is that 
you should never underestimate the role that you have in, in stoking the fire of an athlete, not only to perform on field, but to, to just essentially perform in life. And I know that as cheesy as that sounds, I mean, that's something too that Tex harps on a lot because he deals a lot with the team dynamic. And, um, you know, it, it, again, we all, uh, we all sort of, we put ourselves out there every time we interact with an athlete, but there's just a, it's clear that both you and she had been very, very influenced by the coaching and to, to kind of drive you guys to be that, that persevering personality. And, um, you know, yeah. I wish I, I wish I had more of that when I was younger. Right. And I mean, she's still a very integral part of both of our lives. Um, so Adrian is actually going for her fourth Olympic trials. Um, she, she has yet to make the team even though in the meantime she's been the reigning world champion of the Highland Games for the fifth, I think she just won her fourth or fifth title now. Yeah, she's, a, she's she. Um, if you if you don't mind giving a little synopsis, she's uh basically she's like a, a shot put, discus, hammer thrower. I mean, she does it all. Yeah, so she has an amazing story. Uh, so real quick, um, she was a 13-time NCAA All-American. I mean, of course she was awesome in high school too specializing in uh, hammer, disc, and shot. When she went out for her first Olympic team in 2004, six weeks before the trials, she actually found out she had, um, or maybe it was six months, I think it was six months before the trials, she found out she had Hodgkin's lymphoma and went through really intensive chemo, yet she still competed at the Olympic trials and she finished fifth. Um, and so she's made the Olympic trials the mark since then, 2008, 2012, and I think she's really close to 2016, but every time she's finished like fourth or fifth or sixth, so she's right there at the mm -hmm. cutoff. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, she's trained for the Highland Games, which of course has great translation to the throws events, has been a four-time champion. Um, there's actually a documentary about her called Into the Distance that documents her story. Um, she owns a strength and conditioning facility with her husband in um, South Carolina, and yeah, both of her and I have been really touched by our high school track coach, Denise Gorski. Um, I would say I would never have gotten to where I was athletically and professionally without Denise's help. Um, she's the person who, if my mom didn't drive me a pole vault, Denise did. She was the one who actually found that pole vault coach in Ohio, um, in Columbus. She's the one who would come to our house, like, every two weeks in the summer and help me sort through college application packets and letters from coaches and, you know, really, you know, convince me that education is just as important as athletics, which is, you know, the part of the reason because of her that I went to Brown. Um, and then since then in college and even now, she's been super supportive. Um, her and her husband don't have any kids, so I think over the years, like, we essentially have been her kids. Yeah. Um, she's invested so much of her energy and time into our lives, and yeah, I, I can't thank her enough. Well, amazing, amazing book, and I can't wait for a, a follow-up book. Uh, I'm sh I, hopefully that there's something in the making because um, you're a great writer. There's just so much good content here, and I can't wait to to link this up with the show notes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I haven't I haven't quite had the aha moment yet, but I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it'll come soon enough. Um, I am pretty intrigued by this idea of nature versus nurture, like as to whether an athlete subconsciously picks their sport or they sort of naturally develop into a sport um, outside the realm of parental influence. Sure. Um, and, then, and then obviously um, 
you know, physical and genetic like predisposition to be to excel at, at one particular Exactly. Like reading David Epstein's the sports gene last year, um mm -hmm. My book was already in the publishing stages by that point, so I couldn't really draw a whole lot of evidence from his book. But yeah, that's really what got my my you know cogs in my brain turning about that is like how do we how do we come to be the athletes and choose the sports that we do? Um, and I and it, to me, it's the antithesis of how everyone's trying to specialize early on nowadays. You know, there's this whole argument and I'd be curious to hear what your perspectives are on it whether it's it's advantageous to specialize early on in a in a kids and a teenagers athletic career or just let them be as versatile and as multifaceted as possible with athletics during that time yeah that's a topic we definitely talk a lot about just from just youth and specialization definitely baseball and volleyball are not the way to go if you do specialize just something mm -hmm. creative like soccer basketball you know, favor that athlete further down the road. We also talk about that that form follows function. Are you good at swimming because you were born to be built like a swimmer, or do you transform into that swimmer's body mm -hmm. because you swam all those years? Same with, you know, those football players with huge asses and so on. Right. Like all the power athletes have, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a compliment. Oh, um. nothing wrong with nice exterior <laughs> chains. That's, I feel that's why most women watch baseball is to look at baseball players and that's it. their baseball pants. It's That is it. <laughs> that's I, why I watch baseball. I was raised on a steady dose of, of boring baseball, but the one thing that I did enjoy uh, and it was just the just like white baseball pants. I mean, White baseball pants covering nice asses. Yes. Yeah, that's it. It's nice to have another gal on the show, you know? <laughs> Um, all right. <laughs> well, Allison, I think I think uh, this is a good place to kind of leave it. I think uh, we got to get you on with Steve so you guys can talk a little bit more about that na nature versus nurture um, and uh, and within the athlete. And I mean, I think that'd be a great podcast. Um, oh, I think, sure. I think you. him and I could talk a lot about too about um, how we the constant struggle of us of our colleagues to to take us seriously as scientists with all of our uh, Heavy extracurriculars. Yeah, him and I talk about that a lot. At how you know a lot of our colleagues don't appreciate the work hard, play hard attitude. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is just an element of uh, haters gonna hate. Like, yeah, don't no, you... that's what it is. You know, <laughs> if you ain't got haters, your shit ain't popping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine that uh, that that it's no different than any. I mean, it's it's just like uh, it's no different than any. Um, I don't know, a, attractive quality in a person. You, if you don't, if, if you can't readily access it within yourself, then you, you're you more prone to hate it in someone else, you know? It's, right. It, that's just, uh, it's sad. All right, guys, I think that just about does it. Yeah. Thank you, Allison. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Drop on, drop drop you to empower your performance. Want to get a hold of Allison's book, Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain? You can find it linked with this show on our website or simply head to Amazon. It's available in paperback or Kindle edition. If you're headed to the CrossFit Games, be sure to cheer on Allison and the rest of the Squat Mafia from Atlanta, Georgia. Don't forget, guys, get your shit together for the Hashtag Toast Forward Challenge. Remember, take a picture of your toes pointing forward, hashtag it with toes forward, and tag 
at Power Athlete HQ, as well as at MobilityWad for a chance to win six months free Power Athlete training via Train Heroic, $100 credit at the Power Athlete store plus free shipping, an hour movement and mobility consultation with MobilityWad, and signed copies of MobilityWad books. The competition goes from the 26th of June through the 11th of July, so let's see those hooves, slippers, or prosthetics toes forward. Until next time, bye! Now I gotta cut loose, put it loose.